Today, we've got the final chapter of our long-running Southward Chronicle series. Jeremy and Elle have made it back home, although it wasn't all that easy. But now the wrap-up, what they learned and what it's like to get back to the machine of life after such an incredible adventure. After that, we've got 10 years of backcountry discovery routes, some of the most amazing and free routes in the U.S. for adventure motorcyclists. My name's Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. we got a good one for you. I'm Sam Manikin. Ted Simon. Austin Vance. Simon Pavey. Brian Phil. Helga Pedersen. Jocelyn Snow. Charlie Borman. Carl Parker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Grant Johnson. Jimmy Lewis. Chris Jansen. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. It's wind pressure that powers the MotoBreeze chain oiler. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers the oil to a felt pad on your swing arm. No nozzles near your sprockets. One ounce of oil gets 1,000 miles or 1,600 kilometers. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets. MotoBreeze.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And, of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA. Comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Google Tech filters. CyclePump.com. It was just over a year ago that we launched Southward Chronicles, the ongoing saga of two riders traveling together on separate but parallel journeys. Now, Southward Chronicles is the first time that this has ever been done on a podcast. It's the first of what we call our Moto Travel Series, which you'll you'll find out, you'll hear more about later on, where we follow riders uh, or rider, a rider, through an adventure and kind of near real time and let the adventure unfold in front of us. Now, I have to say that this wasn't without some kind of risk on our part. We had no idea how well this would go, no idea if they would make the trip. And of course, no one could have predicted COVID-19, which ultimately stalled their adventure until, well, they simply ran out of time. The idea was for these two riders to travel each on their own motorcycles from Alberta, Canada, all the way down to Ushuaia, the bottom tip of South America, and then back home. And in fact, they did just that. They actually did the whole route um, as far as actually traveling the distance, but the return wasn't as planned. They were stalled by the pandemic and and found themselves living the final months in Uruguay, waiting there, hoping for a reprieve that would allow them to travel again. And I don't need to tell you, of course, that did not come to fruition. We're still deep in the complications of the, the world's first contemporary pandemic. The trip began with uh, two people, a couple, but a couple with a, a twist. Before they departed on this trip, the most time they had spent together had been limited to weekends because they lived in different cities. And because they're practical, they made the decision before they left in the planning process to each carry all of their own gear, camping gear, tools, everything they needed for their bikes. And that way, if it happened, if it became necessary, they could separate and it would be easy to do. Well, thankfully, that did not happen, at least not in the long term. They had trouble. They had trouble with the bikes. They had trouble with the roads. They had trouble with their relationship. But in the end, they made it. They're back home in Canada, although they flew the last part. Now, 
For this installment of Southward Chronicles, we wanted to explore the settling back into normal life. We've heard many times on this show, riders that have been on incredible adventures and ridden many miles, visited many countries and experienced ways of life that, while few get to experience from the Western world, nomadic travel by motorcycle, arguably the best way to experience travel. But coming home often seems problematic. First, there's the the culture shock of returning to a rich country with all the amenities available, where a a tough day is, it could be having trouble finding a parking spot at the Apple store, or or maybe finding a bus just unloaded a group at your Starbucks while you popped in for your morning coffee on the way to work. I, I mean, our life is so much easier than some of the countries that many travelers that we hear from visit. So what do we want to find out today? Well, we want to find out what it's like for Jeremy and Elle. How does it feel to be back home? What are their plans? What's changed for them? Has their life changed? Has the way they see the world changed? And just what's happened from their adventure? Well, we caught up with Jeremy and Elle just a day or so after they returned to Jeremy's condominium in Kenmore, Alberta. Ground zero. It's after they went through the quarantine of getting off the plane, having to to stay well, actually in a garage and, and use a backyard for their outhouse. Well, you'll hear about that coming up. But uh, now the pause button that they pressed when they left on their on their life, their normal life, it's been released and they're slipping back into the machine. <laughs> Jeremy L, welcome back. Thanks, Thank Jim. Good yeah. to be back. Wow, it's um, it's all over now. I mean, you guys yeah. are sitting here in Canada, and the trip. I mean, as we've all come to know it through listening to your adventure, the the both of you is going through what you went through on this trip. It's 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 done, isn't it? Yeah, we are back in Canada. We are settled, but our motorcycles aren't here yet. I hold out a tiny bit of hope, as I have for most of this trip, that we can squeeze in a tiny bit more. Maybe when our motorcycles arrive in Vancouver and we go pick them up, we could ride them back to Alberta and um, we could maybe camp a little bit along the way and get one last feel of finalizing this trip and actually riding back home instead of flying. Mm. Yeah, because that wasn't your intention from the start. Now, now, last time we talked, you guys were you were getting ready to fly home, and you had to do a multi-flight thing to get home because you could you, had, you couldn't make a direct flight. There wasn't a direct flight. How did that go? Oh, it was long. It was tough. Four flights over uh, forty-eight hours in three continents. Yeah, it was a bit ridiculous. The um, connections we had to make. We had to go from Uruguay to Europe and then uh, do a connection there, and then back across the Atlantic. So we crossed the Atlantic Ocean twice in the span of 48 hours, and, uh, uh, you know, a bit of uh, a bit of tension, I guess, and a bit of sleepless nights, and it was uncomfortable because we were wearing those face masks even when we were sleeping and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But um, ultimately, all things considered, it went very smoothly. And then when you got back, you ended up, uh, what did you do? You, you stayed in somebody's garage? Quarantine immediately upon arriving in Canada. Yes. So we had uh, my sister and then a friend pick us up at the airport in two cars and then they car shared back so we could have a vehicle to ourselves without touching or coming in contact with anyone else. And then, yeah, we went to a garage, which was very well set up. I was impressed. He put a lot of work into that space but in preparation for us arriving there. 
Oh. Yeah, we, we had a friend who set it up for us. We were at a bit of a disadvantage because most people who come back from traveling abroad have not been gone for an entire year. So they just go to wherever they were living and quarantine there. But because my condo was rented out and we had basically sold off a bunch of stuff, we had no place to go. Um, family and friends offered us spaces, but a lot of them didn't qualify um, for the guidelines that Canada set forth. For example, Elle's parents said, yeah, you can quarantine with us. But they were both over the age of 65 and they were both dealing with some um, medical issues themselves and we didn't have complete separation from them. So the only option that we found was living in a friend's garage who he ran a garden hose to the window and we could like pour ourselves some water and wash dishes and things like that. He brought the fridge into the garage for us. He brought a bed out there. So we were doing pretty good. We could tap into his Wi-Fi and um, we were sleeping right beside motorcycles that actually belonged to us that we had stored in his garage before we left. Mm -hmm. So Jeremy was able to charge up his battery on the bike that'd been sitting for three years and Mm -hmm. get it going again. That's interesting that you say tap into his Wi-Fi right after that you mentioned water. <laughs> it's it's oh, interesting yeah. how we, we look at the world nowadays. We need water yeah. and, and of course we need Wi-Fi. Wi-Fi. Um, yeah. you, you, we're also talking about the fact you had to, to share a washroom there. Mm-hmm. How did that go? Well, actually, um, you know, now that we're out of quarantine, I think we can talk about this, but uh, we were basically using his yard as our washroom. There was a little uh, camping toilet provided for us. Which we never used. So we used his yard as a toilet. And then when we had to go do more substantial bathroom jobs, we would go mask up and we would walk into his house and we would go into his basement. We would make sure, first of all, we would give him a text message and say, hey, we're coming in to use the the toilet. And then he would stay in his room and we would go in there. And uh, that was our only shower. Um, But otherwise, we did most of our <laughs> ablutions and everything outside in the yard. Wow. So that's a, a little bit uncomfortable for a couple of weeks. And, and and you mentioned the guidelines that the government set out. So you've actually, fi- I didn't realize you had to find a qualified place. I thought they just sort of put it on you mm-hmm. and said, go quarantine and off you go. One of the requirements from the Canadian government was that we provide a written documented plan ahead of time, I think 24 or 48 hours before we arrived in Canada. And if they didn't like it or didn't approve it or we couldn't provide one, then they would have given us a place to quarantine. That was the threat in the message anyway. I don't know what kind of place that would be. And I was like, well, who knows? Maybe they'll throw us in a not bad hotel room. And Jeremy was like, no, we do not want to rely on that. (laughs) It might be a cot in a church basement somewhere like who knows? It might yeah. be a hospital bed. We don't want to have to do that. Let's use our friends if we can. And uh, our friend Brian actually worked out very well. He actually segregated off a little bit of the yard. So we had some outside space to sit in the sunshine during our quarantine, which was great. Mm-hmm. Made a big difference. Wow. Great to have friends like that. That's that's a, mm-hmm. a real uh, inconvenience for him. That, that's great that you have somebody that you could turn to. Yes. Now that it's now that it's done, I mean, you guys have had time to reflect. You're, you're sort of, I think, probably at this point, starting to fall into your your life again, or at least trying to figure out what what you're going to do and what's changed and what hasn't. Mm-hmm. Do you guys see this as a, as an ending to a trip or or a life event or the closing of something? Or how do you how do you sort of feel about the trip at this point? Yeah, I do. I, it feels um, I feel like I'm walking around in a bit of a fog. And Elle and I have a lot of thinking to do and planning as we're moving into this condo here in Canmore. And uh, dealing with personally, I'm dealing with some financial stress. 
Um, so my head is a bit foggy. I do see it as the closeout of a big chapter. And um, from previous trips, I know that I've gone on these adventures before and I've come back and um, people invite you over and they say, we want to hear all about the trip. But that's not exactly what they mean. What they mean is they want to see your faces and they want to, you know, share a beverage with you. And then they want to talk about, um, you know, what what movies they saw over over the winter. And and so we kind of kind of curtail our um, retelling of these adventures and uh, kind of internalize it a little bit. Do you find that you um, that you want to talk about it? I mean, you sort of get to somebody and you want to tell them all about the adventure you had? L does. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I don't really know. I'm, I'm comfortable just uh, saying, Hey, it's been a while. Yep. And we had some adventures and my bike fell over in Argentina and then we went to the Antarctic and now here we are. And then L will take over yeah. <laughs> and fill in all the gaps. Way, <laughs> yeah. It's a way of trying to keep that trip alive. So it's over and we're done, but I'm still like, we are richer for that experience. And I don't want to let that go and all the memories of it. I've seen other motorcyclists along the way who have done this trip and, you know, welcomed us into their homes and gave us tips and ideas along the way. And I've seen their house like decorated with a road sign that they stole from Argentina or um, a little photo that they took and blew up and posted on their wall of them in front of Fitzroy or Perito Moreno Glacier or somewhere along the route. And I thought, wow, that's I, I mean, I understand why they do that. You have to go back to work and life and paying rent and rush hour traffic and all these things that for me were the things I looked forward to getting away from. And I want to keep those memories alive and I want to have those stories told. I don't want to forget about those. I want to hang on to it, I guess, so in a lower way. Was the trip um, an adventure, a vacation a pilgrimage? Like, like, did you see it as, and did you expect from it? Because we hear this all the time about trips. A lot of people come back and feel they've had a life-changing experience and, and no doubt they have uh, because of what they've experienced and it's so different from their normal life. But did you expect that? And was that trip that sort of thing? I'm conflicted. I have gone on pilgrimages before. Uh, so my first uh, journey to Central America, it was because I was fleeing a broken heart and I wrote about that in motorcycle therapy. And then I did another like year long, almost uh, adventure in the Middle East. And that was a pilgrimage of sorts to process uh, a very religious upbringing that I had. And I wrote about that in my second book, Through Dust and Darkness. And this trip, uh, to me at times, felt like more of a pastime. And it was a bonding experience with L, and it was fantastic. And there were moments of adventure and excitement. But at the same time, I didn't feel on this trip like I had a clear purpose. And um, I don't know how do you feel, Al. Yeah, I wouldn't say that it was a pilgrimage, um, but also not quite a vacation either because of the times when we were sleeping rough or um, enduring hard times that were not very vacation-like at all. So even though I think the word adventure is often overused, especially in the motorcycle community, that's probably the best word to fit. Um, we did make it all the way down to Ushuaia and that was an adventure, but really we were gone for a year and five months of that year was sitting in Uruguay waiting and hoping for circumstances to change or find a way to get back. Yeah. I mean, I'm 47 years old, so that is by definition middle-aged. So I'm a middle-aged man now. And every time I do a trip like this or an adventure like this, I, in the back of my mind, am wondering, like, am I grasping at my youth? Is that what I'm doing? 
or you know, am I just staving off the inevitable, which is eventually I need to build up a bit of a reserve fund for my ultimate <laughs> golden years? Like I do have a bunch of questions. And for me, that's what these trips uh, do. They, they force me to think about these things that I might not otherwise consider if I were in my workaday world. And I do some writing. Uh, I haven't decided if I'm writing a third book, but uh, I will do some magazine articles and things like that. And that gives me time to pause and reflect and maybe even, you know, imbue this trip with a little bit of meaning and, and some positive change going forward. And if there isn't any ultimate meaning or any, you know, real reason for going that we can crystallize out of this, I don't think that's a bad thing. I just want to go. I want to go see the world. It's out there. Like there is so much more out there yet to see, to to sit in one place and not go see the rest of it. And the means of going, my favorite way is by motorcycle. So why not more of that? It could just be as simple as that. Mm -hmm. I want to go see the world. It's it's funny when Jeremy when you said golden years I, I have to I had to smile when you're saying golden years because I don't know how golden it is we always talk about this golden <laughs> years as you get older isn't golden when you're when you're speaking of baking something golden's just before it turns black and burns doesn't yeah. it <laughs> yeah I was I was speaking euphemistically I suppose yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's kind of funny though. We we always look at that, but I mean, and I I think you'd said before in one of the uh, episodes that we did, you don't know what you you know. We none of us know what we're going to be like when we get when we get older. Are we going to be able to do the things we think we're going to do, uh, or well, that we plan right. to do? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, and I've already had one hip surgery, and just before I left on this trip, I talked to you about this on one of an earlier episode. I had a shoulder surgery. Yeah. Um, so I have some joint complications that um, right now are great, but I don't know what they'll be like in 10 years. And then we were also talking at the early episodes about these um, cash calls and uncertainties with my condo. And I dodged a bullet here and I dodged one there. Well, the other shoe just dropped and I got a, a just when I came home, a $13,000 cash call. So um, I came back basically broke and then, but... Mm-hmm but optimistic. And then the other shoe dropped. And um, so now I'm eager to get back to work and to start generating some income and um, get myself back back to black and then plan another trip. <laughs> Finances are a good way to bring back one back to reality. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think that is for, for all of life, isn't it? Uh, you, you know, we t- I asked about, um, was it a pilgrimage? What was it an adventure? Both of you answered in a way that, you know, it wasn't a pilgrimage. It wasn't something that you were, that you set out to do. You didn't have a clear goal was one of the other things you said. And I'm wondering, could it be, and, and especially Jeremy, I know you've done these other trips. You, you did the Middle East. You, you've been in South America before uh, or Central America. And is it because you're traveling together? What was there, was there a change? And I'm not trying to make that sound like a bad thing because it's not at all, but did that sort of take away from something that you could have experienced had you been on your own for both of you? It would have been an entirely different trip, of course. And I think we would have both stepped outside of our comfort zones a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And I, I do value traveling solo. And uh, there were times when I missed it. However, I would say that um, I, I don't know that I would want to do another big solo trip, especially since I've had uh, the privilege of riding with Elle and um, all the benefits that that brought along with it. But it certainly does change the nature of the trip. Yes. I think it would have been very different, not the least of which we would have improved our own Spanish a lot more had we not had each other to speak to in English the whole time. Yeah. 
And for me, I'm uh, quite impulsive when I'm by myself. So I tend to do uh, not a lot of anything. I actually tend to pull back and distance myself from people. But then when the right opportunity comes along, I just jump into it with both feet without consideration of much. And that uh, changes when I'm traveling with a partner. Um, Yeah, so definitely a different trip. I think Jeremy might have got there a little bit faster if he was traveling his own, on his own, and I probably would have dawdled quite a bit and taken much longer. I might not have made it all the way to Ushuaia, considering the pandemic. Um, now that I look back at the timeline, I would not have gone that quickly if I was traveling myself, I don't think. And that sucks. I probably wouldn't have made it. Mm-hmm. But in the end, you guys did come out with a relationship between the two years, probably like you didn't expect going in. Um. I wouldn't say didn't expect. I, I was expecting that we would travel well together with the, uh, of course, with the routine uh, problems and challenges that come with any traveling partnership. But you did but take I, your own gear. You each took your own mm-hmm. gear just in case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was for a number of reasons. Um, but yeah, we did we did plan for the possibility of splitting up either temporarily or permanently. That that was always uh, kind of there. And now what is it? Well, now we're dealing with a whole different set of challenges and a whole bunch of extra questions that we have. Like in a way, this is the hardest part of the journey. <laughs> um, settling into this little condominium that I have and I'm, you know, Elle doesn't have a job right now, and sh- but I can't afford to have no roommates. So I need rent and then it's decorated the way that I like it. And, and um, I've got guitars hanging on every wall. And Al is like, well, where am I going to put my stuff? And I have to stop and think and go, yeah, that is a good question. So we have we have a lot of challenges ahead of us uh, this winter. Yeah. And today is September 1st. Yep. We're just starting this. Like we are just moving in and starting to unpack. There's still bags of stuff and the motorcycles and motorcycle gear have yet to arrive when we pick up the bikes from Vancouver. So just fitting our things together in this space is going to be a challenge plus the emotional and mental component and deciding who gets what and where and how. Yeah. And I've, like I say, I've done these trips before and I've come back and for me, post-trip depression is a real thing. It does hit, but it hits when I least expect it. Um, It's like the Monty Python Spanish Inquisition sketch. Um, I'll be cruising along in my life, no problem, totally fine. And then six months later, I'll all of a sudden be kind of sullen and dark and confused and listless and and then I'll like wonder why. And then somebody will just say, oh, you're just back from a big trip. I'm like, that was six months ago. So, you know, we're kind of preparing for that inevitability or um, as well, like maybe December, January in the darkest months of winter. <laughs> so we, yeah, like I say, we have some challenges ahead of us. I'm hopeful. I'm optimistic. But we have to be prepared for um, some challenges ahead. No one in in the media wants to say problems anymore. We're all using this challenge word, um, right. which I I really find kind of odd uh, that that no one wants to to talk about problems. But but really, what you're looking at is the problems of I guess real life of of life back home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now the the trip when you're on the trip, did you guys find that it was? Did you have sort of a, an equal amount? of problems and challenges? Did you, did you find that, um, it was sort of stressful like life, but in a different way? 
No. <laughs> uh, when I'm traveling, when I'm moving, when we're going every day or every other day, um, when there's a goal ahead of me like Ushuaia that's far enough away that it feels meaningful and it feels like there's purpose, I am quite happy. Even though, you know, throughout the day I'll get irritable and we'll get hungry and maybe I'll be, um, you know, less um, patient than, than I ought to be and things like this. Ultimately, I am happy and and it feels great to have that kind of purpose even if it's an arbitrary goal and, and do both of you have um sort of a, a satisfaction from having done the trip is it, is it sort of completed something for you finished something off i think it's opened up more desire to do more traveling especially because we only i think it feels like we only got half of this trip in yeah. We did get that half and we are fortunate. Uh, we met other travelers who had done a similar thing, saved money for years, um, given up their home and given away possessions in order to finance an entire year free and traveling. And their year had just begun yeah. when the pandemic came along. So we are fortunate to have done that first half. I still want to do the other half. And yeah. I want to go back and see some of the places that we loved. And I want to see the ones we missed too. So I feel my desire to do more travel by motorcycle specifically or travel in general has only been fueled. Mm -hmm. And again, not to complain. We're not complaining. We, we feel very privileged and very blessed to be able to do what we do and what we did. But that said, it does feel like we got cheated out of our complete, <laughs> complete journey, right? The, the back end was disappointing. We were lucky to be in Uruguay of all the countries. It worked out rather well, but we were still stuck when we didn't want to be. That's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and, and I think we sort of talked about this before, but I mean, I think that everybody has a story. No matter what you were doing, whether you were working at your job or staying home mm -hmm. or on a vacation, everyone has a story about COVID and how it's kind of ruined life a little yeah. bit. You know, at least to start everything. with, how it changed everything, right? And, and mm -hmm. none of us were for it and are, are for it. Yeah. I agree. And I've got a friend who had like a worst case scenario than, than we had. And he flew his motorcycle from Calgary to Germany along with his wife. And they were going to go through Africa and then up through South America. Like they were going to spend a whole year doing all this adventuring. And uh, in Germany, when they were unloading the bikes off of the aircraft, um, the bike shifted and slipped and he tried to catch it and broke his leg. And mm. that was the basically the end of that trip. Right. It seems um, sort of a common theme when people return from a trip that they come back with a different idea. People talk about seeing stores and, and feeling differently about the way people shop and the way people live mm -hmm. and maybe even the way you live your own life. Did you mm -hmm. guys come back with, with new ideas? I think because it's not, neither of our first trip, um, we've got some of that that's familiar. Um, being minimalist while we're traveling is something I'd like to try to keep, although I like comfort too. I'm, I'm very happy to live in an insulated place while winter is approaching. In Uruguay, oh, the homes aren't insulated and it was so chilly even when winter wasn't as cold as a Canadian winter. So I look forward to comforts, um, but I don't feel that I have a strong need for a lot of possessions. And I'm happy about that. Um, less stuff to worry about and end up costing you more later if we do travel and need to pay for storage or things like that. Um, but that's not new to this trip. That's something that existed, I think, previously and years ago. For me, the seeing life back here in North America has been a little bit of a comfort this time. Even though it's capitalist and consumerist, 
it's still comforting because during the pandemic, so many things changed and it was hard to know what to rely upon. What can I count on and what can't I? What's changed and what stayed the same? So to see some things that are the same feels good this time around. Mm. Going back to Motology School and seeing that, yeah, they don't have the classroom portion, but they're still teaching students and keeping the classes small and outside, but school still continues. Okay, that feels good. There's something that hasn't changed too much. Jeremy? Uh, I lost the plot. What were we talking about? Uh, did you come back with any new ideas? Um, new ideas. You know, as in, gonna... as, as in life, you know, you, you come back and you've, you've lived through something different. You've seen different ways of life, people living different yes. ways, you know, has right. it changed yeah. your outlook? Yes. I would say that I, I would echo what Elle says. Uh, I've been on uh, trips before that have made me uh, shift my thinking. And this trip wasn't as radical um, a shift for me. But every time I come back from traveling abroad, I am reminded of how good we have our lives here in Canada. And I have a new appreciation for um, my friends and family, things like this. As far as new ideas go, no, not really. I have considered um, maybe possibly buying a place in like Ecuador. I keep thinking about Ecuador and how affordable it is to live there. And possibly I could work for six months in Canada and then live the winters there. But realistically, that's a bit of a pipe dream for me right now. But I guess those thoughts are, are planted in my mind and how, you know, I appreciate my life here, but I think I could have a really good life elsewhere too. You know, it, the world isn't as, as backwards and hostile as maybe we grow to believe when we're in our little uh, comfort zones here in Canada. Meaning that you could, you could go anywhere and, and be comfortable and call it home. Yeah. I mean, when we were in Uruguay, some people were online, they were saying things like, oh, aren't you scared being in a third world country and like all the danger? I'm like, are you kidding me? Like Uruguay is so far from a third world country. It is modern and the people are friendly. It's got a great healthcare system. Uh, like I didn't, admittedly, I didn't know much about Uruguay before I went there, but when I got there, it was just nothing but uh, friendly people and kindness. And yes, I could easily live there comfortably for the rest of my life and other places as well. Now, are you, are you both satisfied with the fact that now you have to get back to the routines and, and, and with this question, Jeremy, I'm thinking about the stress that you're going through with your condominium. If you didn't have the condominium, of course, that wouldn't be a stress. I mean, if you're living off your bike or whatever the case is, are you happy to get back to that stuff in, in some way? Yes, there is a part of me that is looking forward to the routine of getting up in the morning, having my coffee, riding my bicycle to work, even in the winter. Uh, it's a very short ride uh, to where I go to work and to, to seeing my, my coworkers, um, if any of them are listening, uh, I like about a third of them. <laughs> and, and if any of them are listening, uh, yeah, I'm talking about you yeah, that's personally. Just what I was thinking, yeah, that's the one you're talking about, right? Yeah, but when I say I like a third of them, I mean, I really enjoy their company and I go and hang out with them after work as well. And uh, some of the others, um, we just don't have a personal connection, but they're all good people and I've got a great employer. So yes, I am looking forward to it and coming home at night and watching uh, a movie with Elle and playing my guitar. Uh, I do really enjoy that. But um, what's that movie where they're walking through? It's the, the Wizard of Oz where they walk through the poppy field and they begin getting very sleepy and they want to take a nap and everything. Uh, in some ways, that's how I feel about reintegrating into society here is you begin to get 
a little bit complacent and a little bit too comfortable and you just want to lie down and rest. And that's the part that I have to um, remind myself to, to fight a little bit. Um, but I do have a good life here in Canmore. I've got great friends, family, and there's part of me that is looking forward to going back to work. But most of me is still wishing that I could be out there making YouTube videos and writing articles and supporting myself that way. Mm. Yeah. So, so you'd be open to that style of life if you could actually pull it off. Yeah. There's quite a bit of stress comes with, with that sort of thing as well. Um, you know, same as uh, I'd say far more than a regular job because you ha- you're totally dependent upon yourself to bring in your money. Well, that's just it. And here we should plug Adventure Rider Radio mm-hmm. and we should say, hey, if you haven't supported them financially or subscribed or downloaded their podcast, do it now because uh, it's a great service. We appreciate talking with you, Jim. Mm-hmm. And the, I'll miss that too, the the monthly yeah. check-ins. Like, what if we still call in and just talk to you <laughs> as our therapist for the next winter? I think we could use that. Well, thank you very much for that. I, I do appreciate it. Um, Al, now you're you're in the tough position, I think, of having to find work. Mm-hmm. That, that's got to feel like it's definitely more stressful than, than being on the adventure. Are you are you going back to what you did before? I mean, is it just sort of come back and hit the job circuit and nothing's changed? No, I'm hoping to find something different, but I don't know what that is. I mean, I literally have not even opened my computer to start pulling out my resume and freshening it up to start applying for jobs yet. So it's not a task I look forward to. I'm absolutely procrastinating on it, Um, but it needs to happen. I don't like this part. Satisfied is not the word I would use to being back in Canada. There are some good points about it that I appreciate. I'm happy to have been able to see my family. Um, but I don't want to go back to the grind and I don't want to go back to that poppy field where you kind of get lulled into the normal day-to-day drudgery. Um, so maybe this is an opportunity to try to find a job that could be different and interesting and, and a little bit more exciting. But I think most times when you get to do that job day after day after day, five days a week or however often it is, there does get to be a sense of drudgery about it. Um, even motorcycle school, I still work for Motology, but they're wrapping up for the season. You know, if I didn't have to quarantine when I got back from Canada, I probably could have taught a couple classes there. And, um, and that's a job that feels new and exciting in the beginning because the students are so keen and happy to finally get their license and to begin riding and feel, you know, the sense of accomplishment of learning this new thing. Um, but after teaching that for six months and repeating the same things that I say class after class after class, that does get a little bit tiresome. So I'm happy that that's a summer only job and not winter. So you get a chance to come back at it with a fresh mind. As far as my regular main source of income job, I have no idea what that's going to be. I could, I could be hopeful and optimistic, but there's definitely a part of me that's not really looking forward to rejoining the world of the working. (laughs) (laughs) If somebody said, here's all the finances you need, you can winter outside of Canada. And of course the pandemic doesn't exist and you can fly anywhere safely. I would absolutely choose that snowbird life over being here all year round. Mm -hmm. And I think that happens with everything. Like you're saying exactly right. Um, I totally agree with you, Elle, with the things become routine. And, and my theory with humans is I think we're, 
I think we're actually incapable of appreciating anything in abundance. So anything you be, you get used to that's that's regular for you in, in abundance. In other words, I often use the seagull analogy. A seagull is a beautiful bird, but quite often they're dissed because mm-hmm. we see them so much, right? Yeah. And whereas if it was a rare bird, people would, you know, ooh and ah when they saw one and, and, and gather around to have a look. I think that's a that's a human nature thing. I think we need variety to to stimulate mm-hmm. us, you know. Yes. To, to keep us going. So what are you getting, what are you guys going to do for variety now? That's um, a great question. I haven't question. even thought about it yet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We, honestly, you caught us on our second or third day in this condo and our heads are still, my head is still pretty foggy. And um, there's a few questions we haven't examined yet. My, I still have a box of clothes at my sister's house and then some other ones on my motorcycle luggage that haven't arrived in Canada yet. So all I've got with me is a backpack and a couple things here. We are far from settled and thinking about the future too far ahead yet. Mm-hmm. Has the trip disrupted your lives? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I would say generally in a good way, but yeah. uh, financially it certainly wasn't the right. smart play. <laughs> um, I don't regret it though. I would do it again and I'm, and I'm happy we went. But yeah, it has disrupted our lives to, uh, to a degree. Disrupted is accurate, but I wouldn't be the first word I chose because I think that's mostly been positive, like 90%. Yeah, disruption has a bit of a negative connotation, but I would say at the same time it is in accurate. In a welcome way, yeah. yeah. Are you already talking about a future trip? Yes, we're talking, like just throwing ideas around. We started talking about it while we were on still moving, like even before COVID-19 was a thing. Mm -hmm. We were talking about, well, okay, we go back to Canada and then we have to collect some money because, you know, we're we're living on a pretty lean budget. And then maybe we do a round the world trip because that can be done in four months if you rush it. You know, it's it's a bit of a rush thing. But um you know, I do kind of still romantically long for the the Ted Simon kind of adventure where it's open-ended and it's, uh, I mean, no offense at all, but it's solo <laughs> and it's uh, more of a quest and a journey and a reshaping of one's life. But um, looking forward, I can't envision anything like that happening again, but I could imagine another trip like the one we just did mm-hmm. for sure. Jeremy, you, you've been on the road all this time. What's mm. been happening with your publishing company? Because you have numerous books out under that name. Yeah, that's right. So while I was traveling, I had everything on my website, motorcycletherapy.com is the website. I had everything listed as out of stock. But now that I'm back home, everything is back in stock, and including Motorcycle Messengers 2, which was the latest book. So if uh, listeners want to head on over there... Um, check out my website, motorcycletherapy.com. And if you want to send a note uh, saying that you heard about the website through uh, Adventure Rider Radio, that would be great. Now, you mean, you, so you, you stopped all your sales for your trip? Yeah. I mean, I ship, I personally shipped them out, so I couldn't um, have inventory or anything on the road. You could have always purchased it uh, online through Amazon or whatever if you wanted to buy books. But uh, the T-shirts and me sending out books was not possible when I was traveling. So mm, now that's all back online. Now, you mentioned Motorcycle Messengers. That's a, a collaborative effort, wasn't it? Both books? Yeah. Yeah. So there's Motorcycle Messengers and now there's Motorcycle Messengers 2. And we've got some short stories in there from some uh, pretty good writers. Uh, some of them you've heard about, like Ted Simon. He wrote the foreword for the first one. And Charlie Boorman wrote the foreword for Motorcycle Messengers 2. And... Um, then there's also some unknowns and people that I'm hoping you'll read and discover and uh, 
and search them out and their own books. And you've got your own books as well on there. Yes. Motorcycle Therapy and Through Dust and Darkness uh, are my are the books that I've written. Well, I've really enjoyed following your adventure, and I know our listeners have too, and, and we've really appreciated the time that you guys have given us here on the show to tell us what you're doing and the honesty. I mean, you guys have been so open and honest about the whole thing, putting your feelings and thoughts out there about each other and about your adventure. It's been a great learning experience, I think, for us all. It'll be interesting to see what happens next and and uh, what sort of adventures you guys get up to. And, and I'm sure we're going to talk again, have you guys back again. Jeremy, L, thank you very much for your time. I, I really enjoyed this. Yep. Thanks to you, Jim. Thanks it's you. been helpful having you along the journey with us along the way as well. Definitely. Like I say, we'll, we'll talk to you once a month privately if you want. <laughs> we'll do, yeah, it's really a pleasure talking to you. Well, that marks the end for Southward Chronicles. But of course, this is another start for Jeremy Nell. Jeremy can be found on Twitter and YouTube. We have links in the show notes to that. Um, L, the same thing on social media. The links are again in the show notes. And don't forget to have a look at Jeremy's website, MotorcycleTherapy.com, because he's got some great books on there and, and other things as well. Now, if you haven't heard all of the episodes of Southward Chronicles, just pop by AdventureRiderRadio.com, click on the Moto Travel series in the main menu, and you'll find all the listeds of Southward, all the uh, episodes rather of Southward Chronicles listed there. And we'd love to get your comments and, and what you thought on the series. You can comment on the the website in the show notes. You just go to the show note for whatever episode you're talking about, and you can comment right there, or you can send us uh, something on Facebook as well. You can post on Facebook. Now, we're going to take a short break right now while I tell you about a couple of companies that helped make this episode possible today. But stay with us, because when we come back, it's 10 years of the Backcountry Discovery Routes, the BDR. All kinds of great information on some of the most incredible free adventure motorcycle routes that you're going to find. And you'll also find out why the BDR will never give trail ratings like you find at ski slopes. All that and more. Stay with us. Well, depending on where you are in the world right now, you might be coming out of winter and going into spring or into spring, or you might be heading into winter. Either way, it's starting to get cold. And if you're riding your motorcycle, your feet are going to get cold. That is, unless you're wearing Pearly's Possum Socks. Pearly's Possum Socks are a blend of merino wool and possum fur that are absolutely incredible. They are the thing that you need to wear for riding. As a matter of fact, I almost look forward to the colder weather so I can bring out my longer pearly socks. I have the shorter ones for the summertime, but the longer ones for the wintertime. We've made them the official sock of Adventure Rider Radio, and I have to tell you, I've never been excited about socks before, but I certainly do get excited about Pearly's Possum Socks. By the way, Pearly's is owned by Adventure Motorcyclists, just like you. So riders making products for riders. The website is pearlyspossumsocks.com and make sure you throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio, pearlyspossumsocks.com. IMS Products makes high-quality parts for motorcycles. They've been doing it since 1976. That's why you're going to find IMS Products on just about every off-road racer's bike in the top levels of the game. The owner 
IMS, of, of IMS products is Scott Wright. And Scott is an avid adventure rider and a former Baja 1000 winner. So you know the people behind the foot pegs that IMS makes are all about passion. As a matter of fact, all their products. And passion drives great products. There's just no doubt about it. IMS makes a full line of foot pegs specifically for adventure riders specifically for the type of riding that you do. Um, IMS foot pegs enhance your control of your bike by ensuring that your feet have the traction, the leverage, the ergonomics that allow you to weight your pegs and and basically ride like the the pros do. Um, All of IMS products foot pegs are made with a cast certified 17-4 stainless steel, which means they not only work great, but they look great as well. So you've got the extremely durable peg, exquisitely designed, all made in the USA, warrantied for life. Check out their large ADV-1 and ADV-2 pegs, which I think are very unique uh, to IMS. Their website, imsproducts.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio, imsproducts.com. Backcountry Discovery Routes is a nonprofit organization that creates off-highway routes, mainly dirt, for adventure motorcyclists. They started out with an idea and one route, and with a ton of effort and volunteer labor and time, they've created a new route every year since they started 10 years ago. It's their 10th anniversary this year in 2020. How they choose the routes, how challenging are they, do they rate them, and who are they made for, who are they designed for, all things that we're going to talk about today with the BDR president and co-founder, Paul Gillian. Paul, welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you. So Backcountry Discovery Routes is celebrating 10 years. First, I want to, maybe just for those who, who don't know or don't have an idea of what it's all about, what is Backcountry Discovery Routes? Backcountry Discovery Routes creates off-highway routes, primarily dirt and two-track, that lead from the southern border of a state or a region to the northern border of a state or region, trying to string together the best um, high elevation, low usage, really fun roads for adventure and dual sport motorcycles. So how did it how did it get started? I mean, it's been around for ten years now. It's got multiple routes. What really got this thing going? Yeah, the the very beginning actually was someone else that created a route across the state of Oregon. It was called the Oregon Backcountry Discovery Route. And back in 2009, when I started at Touratech, I uh, came from the motorcycle industry, but not from the adventure motorcycle space. And so uh, to help bring me up to speed, um, Tom Myers, who was the owner of Touratech USA, uh, decided he and I should go ride the Oregon backcountry discovery route. And so we uh, set out to do that. And me being a marketing guy, I wanted to bring a camera, a photographer and a film guy so we could create some um, some assets to use to promote Touratech USA. And so we brought uh, Sterling Noreen, who's a, a filmmaker, to do the video. And then we brought uh, Helge Pedersen, who's the, the founder of Globe Riders and pretty well-known guy from his book, 10 Years on Two Wheels. And we headed out there to, to ride and film for a week. Wow. You're doing things in a big way. I mean, we've had Helge and Sterling on the show here before. So that's quite a kickoff. 
Yeah. So that was um, kind of what started it for me. And then we created some, um, I, I wrote a story for Roadrunner magazine that was in the 2010, um, I think, February issue. And we created a YouTube short video that we put on Turtech USA's YouTube channel. And that just got a ton of views. Uh, people read the story. And some guys from Washington, from the Seattle area, saw that and they decided they wanted to make a similar route across the state of Washington. And so we ended up uh, on a lunch date with those two guys and Sterling and Tom and myself. And uh, we said, yeah, it's a cool project. You know, what can we do? And they said, well, we, we need someone to we want to film a documentary. We need someone to pay for it. So at the end of the lunch, uh, Tom had agreed to pay for the documentary and I had agreed to kind of help on the project or manage the project. And we created the Washington BDR in 2010. And uh, then we've created a new one every year since then. Usually when, when ideas come up like this, when people sit around and talk about ideas, it's usually that you're, you're talking about how to monetize something down the road and, and how to make the thing into some sort of business. But you guys didn't choose that route. No, we really felt strongly that uh, the BDR should be by the community for the community, we wanted it to always be, you know, a free resource for anybody. Um, and that was something Tom and I felt really strongly about. And so although um, Tom and Turtech USA bankrolled this thing for, for several years, um, tens of thousands of dollars were put into it. It was really just uh, our way of giving back to the community. And so we, in 2011, we um, made the BDR into a nonprofit and uh, made sure that it was going to stay as a, as a public domain and thing that belonged to the community. And, and uh, here, 10 years later, it's uh, stayed that way. Yeah, and it's surprising, really, for, for something like that to last for 10 years. And from, from the outside, it seems to me that part of the, the success of it is the continual growth because you guys are adding routes all the time. Yeah, we have um, kept our recipe the same and very simple. So it's really cross-state or cross-region, always north to south. And um, we've just done one per year. So we, we try and create the best possible route we can. We film a documentary and then we, you know, we promote it. And, uh, and along the way, we've gotten more into the uh, becoming an advocate for, for this user group and working with land managers and trying to protect and, and keep these riding areas open. Um, it's, it's our mission to create and preserve, you know, adventure riding, dual sport riding opportunities for the community. And so um, along the way, we've, we've gotten actually more into that space than just simply creating routes. And now they kind of go hand in hand and we're, we're creating a very significant economic impact in these uh, less advantaged rural communities. And so that's gone a long way to help keep um, the access open, keep riding open, helps out small communities. Um, it gives our um, users something fun to do with their adventure motorcycle. So it's been a pretty incredible success and just a real honor to be a part of. And that's part of the reason we've attracted such strong talent on the operations and marketing and route creating side. We really have some pretty incredible uh, people that are a part of this, this project now. So when you say that you're you're doing a route each year, does somebody have a job where they're actually going and doing routes everywhere? We have volunteers that that do that. That um, we have, um, you know, a, a seven person board. Several of the board members um, are on the route development committee, and so there's I think four guys on that committee, and then we have a bunch of other helpers. We try and use local knowledge where we can, and so for example, on the northeast 
BDR, which is the most recent one, we had five or six locals that were really instrumental in helping helping us create that. Tim James, who's one of our board members, um, he was the guy that took on the project, but he reached out and found the people that had the expertise in each little state or section of that route. That route goes through six states. And so he had people that kind of specialized in, in their little part of the world. And, and put it together. They typically take two or three years to create, uh, depending on how long it is and how short the scouting season is. And uh, that's kind of the formula these days. Wow, two or three years. I, d- I didn't realize that. So what, what are we looking at when we're talking about a route? Are, are we talking about a route that is, is off-road, on private land, using public land? Can you talk about that? Yeah. So what we do is try and keep it on dirt as much as possible. And we go to great lengths to avoid population centers. It's our goal that you never pass a a single strip mall um, or have traffic lights on any BDR. I mean, sometimes you have to pop into a town to get gas or food, but we try and keep those towns as small as possible. We try and keep the the backcountry experience going. We like to call it the backcountry bubble where you're just Mm. sort of out there in nature on small roads, little uh, one store towns have a single gas pump. That's, that's kind of our jam. And so we, uh, sometimes there's really good riding, but you have to go through a big town to get there. Like in New Mexico, uh, we wanted to avoid Albuquerque and Santa Fe altogether. And so it looks like a backwards C that route because we were trying to avoid some big population centers and really became quite a long route. But that's part of the, the backcountry experiences. You just want to stay really off the grid in very rural areas and, and wild lands. But uh, we try to make them big bike friendly where you can do it on a, on a 1200 GS. Um, or you can do it on a smaller dual sport and, and it's still a lot of fun. Uh, some routes just end up being more difficult because there's just no easy way to get through on dirt. And we part of, part of the reason we create the film is to show the reality of the route and try to communicate the degree of difficulty so that people are not surprised or they don't bring the the wrong motorcycle for the project. You know, we encourage on the more challenging routes, we encourage people to use smaller, lighter bikes um, based, you know, depending on their skill set. Some of the routes anybody can, or not anybody, some of the bikes, uh, some of the routes can be done on, on larger motorcycles by a skilled rider. But uh, if you don't have the top level skills, then sometimes a smaller bike's the better choice for the more difficult routes. You know, it's interesting as is, is you're saying that the film gives people an idea of what the routes are like. Usually when people make a film, when they get into tough stuff, they're, they're getting the, the sort of the worst shots, I guess you could say, or the best shots, depends on how you look at it, but to make things look as difficult. I mean, you almost have to do that when you change something from actually being there and, you know, in a, in a three-dimensional sense to a two-dimensional sense, you've got to add something to it to sort of even come close to, to creating that experience. How do you balance that? with with reality i mean because you don't want to make it look tougher than it is yet you don't want to underplay it too yeah in some of the early films we we got some criticism from the community for uh not communicating how difficult they they are in some cases we have pretty good riders that are a part of the group and you know they make some of the hard stuff look easy and generally the camera makes makes things look flat you know you just can't translate the steepness and sometimes We'll, we'll have a, a steep uphill, loose, rocky climb that's really hard, but it just doesn't translate on camera. And so sometimes we have to stop and explain it or we we make sure to show the tip overs and the challenges along the way. Um, that's just a part of it, but it also helps people, you know, understand the, the degree of difficulty. So we, we try and balance it. We try to uh, make it not appear like a death march so that people don't want to do it. But at the same time, we have to really um, accurately 
portray the challenge. And so we try to bring a range of riding talents now. We don't just have hotshot retired racers on the projects. We have um, people that are, you know, more intermediate or uh, not don't have a high level of expertise riding. And, th- and that helps kind of show the, the challenge element of it. You mentioned about the level of difficulty. Is there grading for for the routes? Do you look at them and you see that one is, is graded, I don't know, a five, a black diamond or something like that, that sort of gives you an indication that you're going to have to be an advanced rider to, to run that particular one? Yeah, this is a question that the community does not like our answer on very much, but it just has to be this way. So everyone wants us to rate these like a ski resort, beginner, intermediate, advanced. And we we simply can't do that. And the reason is that some sections or routes um, can change with the weather or they can change from season to season. Something that's easy um, one month, two months later might be double diamond. Sometimes it has to do with uh, rainfalls or weather events where there will be a big flood and it'll take sort of a, a groomed hard road and turn it into an, a, an actual riverbed, which is very difficult. That's one example. Um, sometimes like in Utah, for example, example, there'll be a rainstorm and it'll just wash out sections of road and you'll be riding along and all of a sudden there's just a big piece of road missing where you have to either stop or pop a wheelie and try and bounce over the missing piece of road. Um, and so that's part of the challenge. Also, sometimes in uh, southern uh, routes, the sand, you can you can scout something in the springtime when it's moist and cool and that sand rides almost like, you know, nice dirt road. And then you come back on a hot summer day where it's 100 degrees and it's like riding through beach sand, just yeah. bottomless beach sand. And so that's the reason we can't grade. And what we do is tell people, uh, we kind of put them in order. We'll rank them from most difficult to least difficult. And that gives people some indication, but we, we simply can't rate them like a ski resort. But to give you some idea, uh, uh, the Northeast BDR, California BDR, Utah BDR, those are among the most difficult. Um, and then on the other side of the spectrum, Idaho BDR, New Mexico BDR, those tend to be some of the, the easier routes and most of the other ones kind of fall in between. Colorado's generally easy, uh, with the exception of some of the high passes are pretty steep and rocky and uh, get people spooked a little bit on some of the high elevation switchbacks. So, uh, but that's kind of it in a nutshell. You can certainly understand why people want to have grading on it. You, you want to know what you're going to get into. You, you worry about getting into some place that you may not be able to get out of. And I understand that. And it's interesting you're saying about the dynamics of weather affecting our trail. But what about how do you figure out what a rider is as far as their skill level? You know, beginner, advanced, what, however you want to look at it. It's a really difficult task. We've done this before on our rider skills program. We have professional trainers and we sometimes we get into talking about this. That is really difficult to nail down to, to see what do you consider yourself as a rider, a skill level. Yeah. Yeah. And, and for us, we don't really have to be in the business of, of rating people's skill levels. What we do is just try and communicate what the route is like, and then they have to make their own decision. But we do tell them to um, think hard about their skill set when they're deciding which bike to bring on the BDR based on how challenging it is and to consider bringing a lighter bike if they if they aren't highly skilled. Um, but yeah, that, that decision has to be made by the individual. And sometimes they, uh, in general, they oftentimes think they're better rider than maybe they are. Mm -hmm. And the BDR is a great reality check for a lot of people to, uh, help them evaluate their, their riding skills. 
are there exits for this? In other words, if you get into a part where you, you, you can start to see, hey, this is, I'm in over my head here. Have there been exits planned before those technical spots? So in some cases, we have um, sections that are more challenging and we will put an easier alternate to that, um, like Lockhart Basin in Utah is one of the most challenging sections on any BDR. And so we have an easier alternate for that. Um, so that's one option. Sometimes um, we will just have the easier way be the main part of the route and then we'll create an expert only option. In uh, California BDR, there were some sections there that were just too hard to be in the main route. So we made those, you know, sort of extra credit for, for people that really like a good challenge. So those are two things you will see on, on the routes or alternates. Um, sometimes there are bailouts where if you get in over your head, you can um, find a way to, to get out. In some cases, there's simply not. Like Lockhart Basin, once you are in there, there is only, there's two ways to get out. You either keep going or you turn around and go back the direction you came. Um, and so that's just a reality, but we try and let people know that and that's part of the reason we do the film is to help communicate those decisions and, and those issues on the Northeast BDR, which is the most recent one we've created. Um, there are class four roads, which is their, um, East coast speak for an unmaintained road. And those proved to be very challenging, very rocky, uh, very ruddy. It was, um, exceptionally tough. And on those for the most part, there were no bailouts. You either had to keep going or you had to turn around and go back. And so we encourage people that if the going gets tough and you're not feeling it, you should turn around sooner rather than later. Because sometimes once you get in there, uh, once you get sort of gassed or, or exhausted, then it becomes really hard. But that, that um, goes to the point we really, one of the most important messages we put out there is to do it as a team. You know, riding a BDR is a team sport. It's more fun with a group. Um, and it's safer as a group. We get a lot of people that call us and say, hey, I'm going to do it by myself. And they want us to sort of bless that, bless that or tell them that that's a good idea. And we, we never do. We always tell them, don't do it by yourself. There's a lot of things that can happen. And then they tell us how they're an ex-racer and how good of a rider they are. And we're like, the deer doesn't care how good of a rider you are when it jumps out in front of you and um, yeah. you break your shoulder and six ribs. You're just, you're going to really need some teammates to help you get out of that situation. So, um, do it with other people. It's a lot more fun and it's, it's a heck of a lot safer. You, you piqued my interest. Tell me a little bit more about Lockhart Basin. So Lockhart Basin is south of Moab. It is an area that is um, flanked on one side by these towering red rock cliffs and the other side um, by a river. I can't remember the river, probably the Colorado River. And uh, it's got these sort of stair step. It's a Jeep trail, basically, that's got stair steps up and stair steps down. And in some cases, when the step is really tall, there's like smaller rocks piled in to create sort of a lumpy, bumpy ramp. And it is, I mean, one of the best pieces of trail I've ever been on, on an adventure bike. But um, this was, I think, 2011 when we did it. So it was a long time ago and I was um, not as good of a rider but it was a challenge. I was on an F800 GS and man, I had the time of my life. It was great. But we had some folks on our team that really struggled. I mean, we were just picking them up off the ground left and right and they kind of got too exhausted and it was, it was a real challenge. But uh, we ended up going slower than planned. And so we ended up having to camp out there. But it was uh, one of the best camp spots that I can remember. Um, just really beautiful. I mean, Moab is just stunning. It's just hard to beat the landscapes there. And this was um, some of the best, most remote Southern Utah terrain that, that I've ever seen. But boy, it's real tough riding. 
Sounds good. It's uh, it sounds like a, a destination to check out for sure. I'm curious what because you, you you mentioned there you're talking about um, having mixed rider skills on the on the team. Are there parameters that you have for exploring the routes? I mean, do you sort of have limits or are there no limits? Do you just anywhere that there can be a route found? You, you know what I'm saying? And and um, and where do you try and stay within those parameters? Yeah, so there are a ton of constraints, I would call them, maybe more than parameters. You know, our goal is off-highway, low usage, two tracks, got to have a good fun factor, avoid population centers, um, in as much dirt as possible. Uh, the challenges or constraints we're up against are um, wilderness areas where you can't go through with a motorcycle, uh, Indian reservations, which oftentimes you can't go through with a motorcycle. There's military ranges, whether they're bombing ranges or big uh, air force installations and things like that, that you can't go through. So there are all these like no-go zones and you're trying to get through in the most fun, you know, high elevation, low usage, interesting way that avoids population centers. And so you're just trying a whole series of these roads and trying to avoid these no-go zones. And that's why it's so difficult is um, oftentimes you have to decide, are we going on the west side of this mountain range or are we going on the east side of the mountain range? And there's pros and cons. And so we have to scout it and debate it and compare. And and so that's kind of how the process goes. Uh, In some cases, there are really uh, fun ways through, but they're too challenging. We just, you know, it's something that maybe be fun on a dirt bike, but not so much fun on an R1200 GS. And so some, in some cases we have to go a, a different way just because the going gets too tough. Or in some cases the road doesn't go through or it's a seasonal issue. Um, and also one of the big challenges is the most fun and interesting roads are the ones that are getting closed down by the land managers at a sort of unprecedented rate right now. Um, As their budgets get cut, they have less money to maintain roads. And so what they do is they close the roads that are getting used the least. It makes logical sense from their end, but for us, those are the fun roads that we really want. And so that's part of the reason the BDR matters so much is because the sooner we get to those roads and formalize them into a BDR route, the more likely they are to stay open. Because once we prove that there's this established recreational component to that road that's used by a lot of people, then the land managers say, ah, they recognize recognize it and they say, okay, we have to keep this open because this supports a big category of tourism. So that's why um, it's really important to support the BDR and help the BDR um, find these roads and and make them permanent, you know, adventure riding roads by putting them into a BDR because then we have this sort of managed travel and the land managers factor that into their plan. And so those fun roads will stay open. And in some cases, we, we don't get there soon enough and those roads just go away. They get closed before we get to them and then they become unavailable for forever, essentially. Let me just jump back, though, when I was asking you about um, your parameters for the trail. So is it set up so that the average rider can ride the average adventure bike or anything like that? Are you aiming for something like that? Yep, that's pretty close. We we aim that uh, the average rider can do it on a full-sized adventure motorcycle. That's our goal. Uh, in, in some cases, that's not the reality, but that's that's always the goal, and we try and hit that at, at, when we can. In some cases, like on the Northeast, after riding that myself, uh, I realized that um, those Class 4 roads 
are pretty tough on a full-sized adventure bike, like on a 12 GS. Um, I would not choose that motorcycle for that route. Uh, if you skip the class four roads, then it's wonderful on a GS. It's quite fun. And for some riders, that's the right decision. But um, for those that really like an adventure and to work up a sweat and to feel like they're riding a hair scramble or an enduro, um, boy, it was, it was hard to beat. It was so much fun. I was on the F850 GS, which was a really nice bike for that because of the 21 inch front wheel, high clearance, you know, it was really fun, but man, it, it was, uh, we were working up a sweat and getting hot under the collar riding it, but it, it was super fun. So yeah, the, the, the criteria is that uh, average rider can do it on a, on a big full size GS. That's the whole point, really, of, of adventure riding, isn't it? I mean, because often when you're out somewhere, you know you'll do better with a smaller bike. There's no doubt about it. I think the thrill is is getting that big bike into those places and out of those places that you really shouldn't be in. You know, I mean, that, that's it. Yeah. And I guess since we're talking about the bike size, I know I've mentioned um, riding smaller bikes. There is a, a, a downside to the smaller bike, and that is that it simply doesn't carry the load nearly as well. And so I do prefer a pretty big adventure bike. I like, you know, the 800 plus cc size um, because it just carries the load a lot better. I have ridden smaller, you know, 650s and even smaller bikes, but you have to be really light on the packing. Otherwise, the bike really squats down and it just doesn't handle as well. So that's the cool thing about F800s and 990s and 1090s and even the new 790, that sort of twin cylinder category of motorcycle and the, the 12 GS and the Africa twin. I mean, I've ridden just about all of those bikes on, on different BDRs and I really like the way they handle. You just don't feel the load on the bike when you're out there riding. You kind of forget that you have all your camping gear and your tools and all your clothes and you're just, you just become a kid again, you know, having fun riding in the dirt on a bike that is a heck of a lot of fun on, on two track. You know, I came from the, uh, the, the mini bike motocross sort of side of things. And I remember reading in dirt bike magazines, these 990s and I was like who would ride a bike on dirt or that big of a bike on dirt like you know I thought a 450 was a big motorcycle and I could not understand how that could be fun and then I ended up in the industry you know working um, for Tech USA and found that man these big bikes are so much fun even fully loaded I mean we have the chance to ride with these ex-pros you know we had Johnny Campbell on one of our on our California project we've ridden with Quinn Cody last year we we rode with uh, Mike Lafferty from the east coast these guys had so much fun on these big bikes. They just couldn't believe how much fun it is just ripping along on two track and, you know, going through these challenge sections. They were like, man, I'm going to come back. I'm going to bring my friends. They just, they were so stoked. And these are guys that, you know, um, are used to pretty extreme challenge on motorcycles and it was keeping them engaged and having fun. And so that really, you know, validates the whole BDR thing when me, when guys like that can have fun on it, on, on these trails, on the big bikes, you know, it's good. Yeah. Yeah. It really speaks to it. And I like the way you guys have managed to keep it an adventure. It's not, it's not gentrified. These are not trails that are marked out and signed, you know, like you would at a walking trail in a park, by the way, you're describing that this is real adventure stuff. This is stuff where you have to go in and you have to assess yourself. You have to assess your own skills. You have to prepare properly and then tackle the adventure and anything can happen. Yeah, we liken it to to climbing a, a mountain, you know, where you don't just wake up one morning and decide you're going to climb Mount Rainier. You uh, start training for it. You do some hiking. You maybe do an overnighter. You start doing a little um, work on snowfields and glaciers, and you sort of build up to it. And the BDR is the same way, where you need to kind of get the bike, you get it get it dialed in, get your camping gear sorted out, and you just sort of ease into it and start doing more and more. And you make it your your goal. You know, you make it your goal to ride a certain BDR, but you have to 
you have to plan, put in the work, put in the preparation for it to be successful. And that's part of the fun of it is having this goal and, and, and working towards it. And it is quite a sense of accomplishment when you um, finish one of these routes. The, the Northeast BDR, that took us 10 or 11 days. It was one of the most challenging routes. And I felt so good when we finally made it to the end. You know, it's hard keeping your body together and the bike together that mm-hmm. long um, through that sort of uh, challenge. But boy, it's really rewarding to get to the other end. Well, the BDR, 10 years. Now, now, as you mentioned, in a way, you become advocates for us riders and for the type of riding we like to do. There's an economic impact. And, and I like the way you're keeping it to small towns because that economic impact is easier to see in a small town than it is in a big center. And, and I think you guys did an, um, a study on this at one point, didn't you? Yeah, in 2017, we did an economic impact study, which showed uh, that at that time, $17.3 million were being spent by out-of-state riders in these states that had um, BDR routes. And all of that money goes to the tiniest of small towns. Um, We've been in these towns talking to the locals, and they tell us stories about the schools um, are almost, or the school district is almost closed down because there's just, people are moving away. There's not enough kids in the school they can't afford to keep it open. And then the kids are going to have to drive 90 minutes away to go to another school district. And so when a BDR comes in and has, you know, a thousand or 1500 riders that come in and fill up their bikes, you know, shop at the grocery store, you know, use, use the, the local motel, it really makes a big impact and uh, helps these small towns um, remain viable, which is important for us because it gives us the, the fuel and the resources we need to, that are the jump off points to explore some of these more remote areas. And so it's really critical um, for us to keep them alive, but it's also important for them. And then on the motorcycle industry side of things, that uh, economic impact study showed that 1,170 motorcycles were purchased in 2017, specifically uh, because the the purchaser had plans to ride a BDR. And so it it sells a lot of bikes, it sells a lot of um, gear and accessories and things, and helps keep the segment you know lively and 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 viable for a lot of these companies, small companies that are um, making a living supporting this um, segment of of recreation. Wow, those are big numbers, 17.3 million and 1,170 bikes. Man, that, that really gives a sort of, some sort of indication of just the size of the market and the, and the impact that it has on things. There, there's so many pluses with the BDR that I see. The other plus for it, for the rider themselves, is that quite often part of the, the problem with finding something to do with your bike, especially on a, on a short time frame, you know, if you've got a week off or something, is figuring out what you want to do. And here's some adventures that you can sort of go through and you can pick and be challenged by someone's route. So, I mean, I just think there's, there's just such a bonus. When someone comes to the BDR website or however they have to come to find out about the trails, what are they looking for? What do they get? So, you know, like we mentioned earlier, it's our 10-year anniversary. We've got 10 routes, and we now have 10,000 miles of downloadable GPS tracks that wow. anybody can go to the website and download. So that is the the primary deliverable to the community. Uh, beyond that, there's just a ton of planning resources um, on the site. So they can click on the routes, and then they can select from any of our routes. And when you click on that route page, um, there's the download the tracks um, link. There's how to use the the routes. There's links to purchase the Butler maps. There's information on lodging 
food, fuel. Recently, we've been, been adding in these discovery points, which is kind of all the interesting stuff you can find along the route, whether it's right on the route or, or a short distance away from the route. So it gives you a lot of interesting things to go see. There's frequently asked questions, which is probably the most popular um, part, uh, packing lists. There's also links to um, Facebook groups. We have a Facebook group for each BDR now where riders can go to, to link up with other riders to do it or to kind of get the most recent information like, hey, I saw this gate was closed. Does anybody know the status? And someone will chime in. Oh, yeah, it was there last week. The gate was open, that sort of thing. Um, we also have route updates, which is oftentimes if there's a forest fire or construction or a road got washed out, we'll put these route updates or some land use issue. And then we now have these interactive active maps where you can um, apply layers to it. So you can apply a snow layer and you can see exactly where the snow is on any of the BDR routes. Uh, there's a forest fire layer. So like um, recently we had a forest fire on the Washington BDR in the northern part of the state. And so we're able to go to the site um, and click on that layer and you can see exactly where the forest fire is. So these are some pretty incredible real-time resources and this is all free for the community. And it's all funded really just from the community that give back in the way of donations or um, being a part of our supporter program. Um, and then there's companies that support it like Touratech and Climb and uh, Cena and others like that. A lot of tour companies that support it. And so um, that's the reason all of this is free. It's from the generosity of the community, from all of the um, generosity and hard work of our volunteers and board members and ambassadors that do this just purely out of passion. Um, almost everybody involved with the BDR does not receive a paycheck. We only have uh, one part-time employee and then a couple of contractors that, that make this whole thing work. And the rest of us just volunteer our time to, to make it happen. 10 years and over that 10 years, it's had to have matured a lot as far as how you're doing things. It's certainly very, very polished. There's no doubt about it. And you've got a formula that's working there. What does the next 10 years look like? Yeah, that's uh, something that we've been thinking a lot about. So now that we're at this 10 year mark, we are actually filming um, because next year, due to the COVID situation, uh, we were not able to come out with a new route film. So we were scheduled. We should have been out riding um, Wyoming BDR and filming that here over the last couple of weeks, but we had to cancel it just out of safety concerns. And so next year, um, our, our 11th film won't be a new route. It'll actually be a history of the BDR, which will delve into a lot of that ancient history, talk about some of the fun uh, things that you and I've been talking about here about advocacy and economic impact and women in the BDR and, and that. And then we're going to get into um some uh, discussion of the future for the BDR. And so that'll be a part of, of that film. But I can tell you that uh, the biggest challenge moving forward is going to be managing these 10 routes. Every new route is kind of like a child you have to uh, care and feed and look out for. And it has its own set of challenges and keeping the route up, uh, route um information up to date. And oftentimes uh, land issues, land use issues will arise where we'll have to create a reroute or work with some locals, whether it's logging or uh, someone that thinks it's um, that the, the public easement isn't for motorcycles or whatever. We have to manage all of those things. And it takes a lot of time and energy. And so we are actually um, going to be staffing up. We're, we're actually hiring another full-time person to help on the back end, just running all this um, BDR machinery. So um, the other challenge is going to be to 
try and engage the next generation of riders. As our user group sort of ages out, uh, we got to reach out to the younger crowd and, and keep the next generation of motorcyclists interested in this form of recreation so that it, it stays viable. Now, this is a problem that you're talking about. This, this is an industry problem as well. Yep. You know, yeah, that, it is. We're, it, we're all looking at that. Yeah. If you talk to the folks at the BMW um, Owners Association, that's always been their big challenge is how do we keep younger riders coming into this as our as our main users age out. And so that's a big challenge. And then, you know, creating the routes, we're trying to make every film better than the last one. And so we've had to really step up our game and there's more, um, more camera folks involved, longer filming periods. And, uh, it's a challenge to continue to raise the bar on filmmaking. Uh, also a challenge on the fundraising side of things as this thing gets bigger, it takes more money to sort of run. So a lot of energy goes into that. And then on the route creation, you know, we've we've cherry picked most of the easier routes and some of the better routes. And now it gets more challenging where the routes are either further away from where many of us live or they're just um, harder to create a route through. Like Wyoming, for example, took us forever to create that route because the window of opportunity is so short because there's very high elevation there. Uh, winter comes very early and the snow melts very late. And so you only have a few months to get in there and scout it each year. And it was a, it's just a long ways away from where a lot of our route development folks live. So that's been a challenge. And at some point we're going to probably run out of Western States here to do, and we'll have to look uh, more broadly, either doing provinces in Canada or doing other countries, you know, elsewhere in the world. And so those are some of the challenges that the future holds for us, but um, we've got a good team and we're, we're planning for that. And um, I expect uh, the BDR, I'll keep doing what it, what it has been doing for another 10 years and be, we, we kind of liken it to, it's like the nucleus of the adventure rider community, you know, it's kind of holds together a lot of the aftermarket companies, the OEMs, you've got the tour companies, you've got um, all these other companies that support it. And then you've got the rider groups, you've got the land managers that are involved, and they're all kind of held together by the BDR. It really connects a lot of dots um, in the adventure space. And so we, we think it's um, turned out to be a pretty cool thing and something that's hard to imagine um, if it didn't exist for the community. It's interesting to hear you mention going to other countries. I, I really like the sound of that. That was one of the things I wanted to ask you about uh, was whether you were considering that because um, I think you guys, you've got a great product there and it can be taken and done. You can do the same sort of thing. And like you said, in Canada or possibly in Europe. Now there are other trails. We, we do have the, the Trans-Canada Trail here that we've talked about before on the show and, and Europe has one as well, but um, not quite done the same way that you're doing the backcountry discovery routes. Um you did mention that, that you have a lot of volunteers there. Are you looking for volunteers? How does that work? And then how can we support the BDR and keep it going? Yeah, so we, we do rely on volunteers. Uh, a lot of the people that want to throw their name in the hat, it's to be in the film. And uh, believe it or not, we don't have a real big need for, for more people in the film. A lot of the opportunities are just sort of doing the heavy lifting. You know, we, we need help at events when we're, we have a booth, you know, someone that can help answer questions and, and run that. Uh, we sometimes need volunteers to help on, on our order fulfillment or uh, membership drive fulfillment and things like that. Uh, all of that interactive map 
stuff that we were talking about, that's a volunteer that just came to us and said, Hey, I have this skill set. I think I can help your website be more useful to, to the community. And so uh, a lot of times if, if they just reach out to us and let us know what it is they're interested in doing or what they can do, if we have the need, then it, it sort of happens. Uh, we typically have a fundraiser event every year. Uh, this year it got canceled, but we've done, I think, five or six of them. And a lot of People that become volunteers or part of our organization meet us at the fundraiser. That's where we, we go ride motorcycles and have sort of workshops and roundtables. And that's where we get to know people and they get to learn more about the BDR. And so that's a great way. If you want to get involved, come to the fundraiser events. Good way to, to get to know the people and get uh, a sense for what the organization is all about. Um, in terms of supporting us, uh, you can on the website, there's a big green button that says support the BDR. And um, you can become a supporter, which is there's three different levels. There's 100, 250, and 500. And each level comes with a different basket of goodies, hats. Sometimes there's little cruise tools items in there. There's discount cards for a, a huge range of companies. There's, I think, 50 different companies that support the supporter program. Uh, you can just do a straight donation. Anytime you go to the BDR uh, website to download tracks, you can make a donation right there at the time you're doing that. Um, we recently became a 501c3 organization, and so now uh, people can donate in a tax-deductible way, in the United States anyway. Um, you can also, if you have an employer that offers um, an employer match, so like you work for Microsoft, for example, if you give the BDR you know, $200 donation, it'll be matched by your, your employer. Um, we also can receive donations from charitable trusts, um, estates, and things like that. And so it's really opened up the the opportunities for fundraising. Um, we also are going to do the first ever live broadcast um, 10-year anniversary party in October. On October 22nd, we're going to do a two-hour live thing where we're going to show different video clips. We're going to have special guests. We're going to talk about the, the history of the BDR. We're going to talk about the future. We're going to have some special surprises, and we're going to do a little bit of fundraising um, during that. And that's kind of in lieu of our uh, fundraiser event, which we had to cancel. But the fundraiser event, we uh, a little bit of the money just from the entry fee of the event goes to support the BDR, but then we also do a, a raise the paddle thing at the end of the event where people can donate more if they, if they want. And that has um, turned out to be a pretty um, major fundraising element for us. Um, you also can participate in the holiday auction so leading up to Christmas, we have a holiday auction where we have all kinds of cool prize packages. Um, a lot of them are motorcycle tours or riding opportunities. Sometimes there are, uh, you know, climb gear or Touratech suspension or things like that that you can bid on and the proceeds go to the BDR. So there's uh, a lot of ways to, to support it. Uh, but yeah, just go to the website, which is ridebdr.com or follow us on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter, or um, you can find one of those route pages. So there's a page for each of the 10 routes. And if you're interested in riding the Colorado BDR, just find that Facebook group, join the group, and then you can stay up to speed on any activities happening on that route. Well, of course, we'll put the links in the show notes as well for the BDR. Paul, thank you very much for coming on and talking about it. And and thank you for the work that you, you've put in over this past 10 years to the BDR and the whole team. I mean, it's just great to have people that are so dedicated that will put in their their spare hours when nobody's there applauding them and uh, and keep something like this going. I mean, thank you very much. 
Yeah, it's my pleasure. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't have made it this far without uh, having a great group of people that are involved. Ina Thorne is our director of operations. She works on the BDR, you know, seven days a week. She's really the the workhorse that does a lot behind the scenes. And then Tim James um, is one of our board members, but he's the reason everything looks so good. He owns a um, creative agency in the New York metropolitan area. And so he's volunteered tons of hours and a lot of his company time to, to make the BDR into a really top tier brand. So uh, yeah, it's a pleasure working with those guys. And we just appreciate the support of the community. That's what keeps it uh, working for us is hearing all the stories of people that got out there and rode and had the time of their life. So that's what makes it all work worthwhile. That's great. Thanks, Paul. All right. Thanks for having us on. That was Paul Gillian, president and co-founder of the Backcountry Discovery Routes. Their website is ridebdr.com. Of course, that link is in the show notes for this episode. Now, you can download all the tracks for these routes free of charge. But if you'd like to support them, that again is at their website, ridebdr.com. Hey, I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and of course, you, the listener. Thank you very much for being a part of it. Remember, all of our episodes are available anywhere you find podcasts, but we'd love it if you drop by our website and check out the show notes for each of these episodes. We put photographs in there and some links and uh, different information, so it's well worth your while to drop by. And of course, you can put your comments in there, which we always love getting. That's at AdventureRiderRadio.com. Now, we do another show called ARR Raw. That's a roundtable style panel discussion that we do once a month. It comes out every month and we've been doing it for years now. It's a very popular show as well. If you don't know about that one, search for that. Again, it's on the website, adventureriderradio.com. You need to subscribe separately. It's a different feed for that one. Anyway, it's time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you very much for listening. And hey, if you're not supporting the show, Adventure Rider Radio, we would love it if you would drop by and click on the support button. Anything $10 or more gets you a sticker sent at you, our way of saying thank you. Anything $50 or more gets you a mention on the Raw Show have a look we'd love to get you as one of our patron supporters as well anyway get out there and ride your bike my name is jim martin talk to you next week hi this is charlie borman and you're listening to adventure rider radio (laughs) 